We're continuing today with Rachel and Leah and Jacob and Laban and how that's playing itself out. So we're moving inexorably towards uh, Jacob becoming Israel. And remember that we have to we have to remember that in the story, as the narrative, as we have writ, read it recently or listened to it, uh, portrays Jacob, who will become Israel, as someone in the Hebrew it says morally innocent. So you can understand morally innocent as somebody who's guileless or naive. Or you could understand it to mean, and the text I think does understand it to mean, somebody who has no morals or has no moral center. And so the great uh, mystery is why in the world would God select Jacob to be an instrument of his plan? And it may be a lesson to us that God chooses who God chooses. And in this case we will see what happens as Jacob continues to march on his own road of spiritual maturity. But I thought this morning I'd preach about uh, the the reading from Genesis uh, and say a couple of things about Romans and and about the gospel because it it struck me reading it this week that it has uh, something to do with how we understand family. There's been a great struggle in this country over the last many years about those who believe that we need to stand up for the traditional family or we need to stand up for family values. And here we have a situation where Jacob is sent into Canaan to find a wife from his natural country. His mother, Rebecca, uh, sends him there. It's her instigation, but Isaac lets him, says he, he can go and should because Rebecca can't stand the Hittite wives that Esau has married. Do you know I had a professor in seminary who would sit at faculty meetings? My Old Testament professor, Joseph Hunt and he would take the notes in Hittite. (laughs) I'm serious. And he would write this stuff on the board in class, you know. And uh, the Pentateuch, you know, about Genesis. He'd write all this Hittite on there and then look at us and say, of course, uh, I think that is a folk entomology. He'd say, well, Father, if it is, fine. So Laban tells Jacob, who has fallen in love with Rachel, and he wants to marry her. And he said, well, if you work for me for seven years, you can marry her. So he works for seven years, and when we get to the end of the seven years, uh, it's time for his wedding, and so... Jacob says, send Rachel into the tent. So so, uh, Laban sends Leah into the tent. Now, it's not quite clear to me how it took him all night to figure out (laughs) that that it wasn't Leah, uh, Rachel, that it was Leah. But in any case, he wakes up and says, my God, it's Leah. 
So he remonstrates with Laban and says, you know, I, you tricked me. You said after seven years I could marry Rachel. Now it's interesting, isn't it? Because we've got a manipulator on our hands and Jacob from the jump. He's cutting corners. He's figuring stuff out. He's a survivor. He's a guy who seems to know uh, that sort of thing. And one of the commentaries I read this week about this passage was, one wonders if this is a case of destiny produced by character. (laughs) Another example of how somehow uh, uh, Jacob was chosen in the midst of all of his uh, shortcomings and difficulties. So Laban says, okay, you can... You can uh, marry Rachel if you work for me for another seven years. So he does, and he does. Now, the family that has been created here is considerably different than the family we know in, in our world. Most of us are part of what sociologists like Peter Berger would call uh, the bourgeois family the bourgeois family began in the 19th century. Probably when there was a net migration off the farm since 1815 in the United States and earlier than that in Western Europe when the Industrial Revolution began and people began to come into the cities and we had the women stay home for the most part. Some worked and raised the families and the men worked. If you're on a farm, everybody's working and they're all together. If you've ever been to a farm or lived at a farm for a while, or a ranch for that matter, uh, everybody's working. So the children are sometimes with their mother and the children are with their father and they're out working and doing and stuff. And uh, we're all in it together. But we had a big change in the 19th century. And so most of the people who idealize what they call the traditional family are idealizing that picture. That's what they think it ought to be. So now we have new challenges and opportunities in this culture because we have different kinds of families. We have blended families. We have same-sex families. We have people who are single. It's always been true. But we have a lot of different kinds of families and relationships. And some people think this is the beginning of the end. And other people think, you know what, this is a great opportunity for us to understand uh, new ways of being and relating. How is it that we understand uh, our common life together as people? Father Schlegel, my predecessor at St. Luke's, uh, was an anthropologist, taught at the University of California, Santa Cruz. And he talked to me once about something that anthropologists call Kinship altruism, which is the family, however we understand that. Even, you know, Jacob and Leah and Rachel and the kids and Laban and Isaac and all this, you know. And it's the basic unit. And most of the time, all energy, affection, substance, and so forth, emotion is invested in this unit. So the altruism, the good things that we do, we do for our family first. And we're taught to do that. It's proper that we look after our families. 
lots of different kinds of families now, all exercising kinship altruism. So the Christian gospel suggests to people that what we need to do and we need to learn how to do through prayer, through the way in which we take one another seriously, through the way in which we wish to create a society where it is easier for people to be good, we begin to see how do we find the ways of transferring the, the altruism that we direct towards our family to those outside our family? How do we practice kinship altruism outside as well as inside? And that this is something that we need to recognize, sort of, uh, my grandfather always used to, call, to talk about this about animals. He used to say when we were around a lot of animals and stuff, he'd say, this is kinship with all life. Kinship with all life. And that's what you feel when you do that. So in this, we're going to see that as God is making the nation Israel, there is always going to be the desire that this kinship altruism spreads to everyone. And by the time we get to Isaiah and the great prophets, they're going to say, you know, God is calling everyone to come within God's saving embrace, not just a chosen few. And we're to be the instruments of affecting that reality. And so in our own culture, it's important that we understand uh, that it's not a good idea to throw cold water on various models of family. We live in an age where we have a plural understanding of the nature of family. And that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. You know, in the Gospels, remember when Jesus is in the temple in Jerusalem, his parents had come up to make the yearly sacrifice. And so they started to head back to Nazareth. And they're on the road for three days. And somebody looks around and says, gee, where's Jesus? I don't know. Have you seen him? No. Now they're going with aunts, uncles, cousins, friends, hangers on, all kinds of people. They're going back to Nazareth. They haven't paid any attention where Jesus is. So they go back to Jerusalem and find him in there discoursing with the learned scribes in the temple, in the story. If that had happened today, we'd have had child protective services out uh, immediately. Right? A different view of family. A different way of understanding family. Not that I wouldn't put uh, child protective services on the scene. Don't get me wrong. But think about the mindset. And think about uh, the anxiousness that's diminished. The non-anxious presence, you know. It's important to understand this. So passages like this also lead us to begin to think about things like our own relationships, our own families, our own marriages, and how we understand this. One of the things is all of the people in this story seem to get what they want. Rachel, Leah, Jacob, Laban. But the only two in this case uh, that got to where they wanted they were not able or had no opportunity to exercise any volition of their own. And yet we see here how things sort of seem to, turn, to, to work out, but over time, 
That was wearing thin. It was wearing thin. And as a result of that, we had to have a new model. I'll just say this. When I was a kid, I'm a baby boomer. My grandparents were married for 58 years. And most of their friends were married like like that for a long time. Do you know at the turn of the 20th century, the average length of a marriage was 19 years? So when you're, uh, when you're, when you're promising in the vows to uh, uh, stay married until you're parted by death, if you had any knowledge of that kind of statistical reality, you might feel it was a little easier. So they were married for 58 years, and, and they were, for all intents and purposes, I spent a lot of time with them. I think they were, they were very happily married. But in that marriage and in their friend's marriage, in the marriage, there was only one vote. One vote, not two votes, right? My grandfather's vote. That works, I suspect, if there's not too great a clash of wills over time. I don't know. But now we have two votes, and Winston Churchill said, you know, democracy is the worst form of government except all the others. <laughs> so it's, a, it's, a, it's progress. It's moving uh, in the right direction. Although I can remember a story that my family used to tell all the time. My great uncle and his wife, uh, his second wife, uh, moved to Germany in 1938 because his second wife's daughter lived in Munich, München. And guess what was about to happen in 1938 in Germany and in Europe? So Uncle Merritt sends a cable to my grandfather and he said, Ansel, we have to come. They're going to start to shoot over here and we're coming back. So they came back. Say. November of 1938. And there at my grandparents' house, I wasn't, of course, born yet, uh, but the custom then, as it was when I was a little boy, was that there were two turkeys on Thanksgiving, one at each end of the table, and my grandfather carved one, and my Uncle Merritt carved the other one. And Uncle Merritt was deaf as a post. And he had one of those old hearing aids that you'd put in your ear that had the cable that came down and went into your pocket. And whenever the conversation at the dinner table got a little, you know, edgy, he'd just turn the hearing aid off so he couldn't hear anything. So Aunt Frida, who was not uh, loath to uh, uh, give her opinion on all subjects, said in the middle of the dinner, the turkeys are being carved. She said, you know, they don't tell you all the good things about Hitler. So my mother said to me, my grandfather was carving, and he had the carving using the knife, and he he looks over at Aunt Frieda, and he says, now listen here, Frieda, we're not going to have that kind of conversation at this table. And she shut up. Do you think that would happen today? Don't know. But I always use that as an example of, well, from time to time, you know, this stuff can happen. So let me say where I think Paul 
I, that's way too far afield, and I apologize. <laughs> they, the, uh, Edwin Friedman, my great hero, who was a licensed marriage and family therapist for about 40 years, said uh, the healthiest relationships, the healthiest marriages are symptom-free 70% of the time. The healthiest marriages are symptom-free 70% of the time. Now, I don't know about you. I don't wake up and say, am I noticing any symptoms? Are, are there symptoms? You know? Actually, I'm kind of buoyed up by that statistic. That's pretty good. You know, 30%, you know, maybe that's somewhat manageable in some way. But... Uh, we understand that in the 30%, maybe that's the place where God's purposes are being worked out. Paul says today in Romans 8, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So I read Matthew and I read all of those, that catena of parables, and do you understand all this? Yes. And then the most important line in the whole of the, of the gospel for today Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And you know what that is, is a statement about the power and the importance of the tradition with a capital T. And why that's important is that within relationships, there are traditions that are created and that we can fall back on. And when we seek help from people whose practical wisdom seems to be somewhat beyond ours in a particular area of relationship, it helps us understand the ways and the means we might strengthen our own. And remember, in the Episcopal Church, there are three things that we use to determine what is authoritative for us in the practice of our faith and belief. They are the Holy Scriptures, the tradition with a capital T, and our human reason and experience. It's called the three-legged stool. That the Anglicanism, the way we practice Christianity, rests on. So by virtue of that, the tradition looms large. It's, it's very important. And when we understand this, we're not talking about traditionalism. You know? Traditionalism is, uh, what's his name, uh, on the Smothers Brothers television show who talked about going to his sister's house and she was cooking a leg of lamb and she cut, took the leg of lamb and she cut the sinew and bent the leg, the bone back and put it in the, the uh, baking pan. And so he said to his sister, why do you do that? And she said, because mom always used to do it. When she taught me how to cook a leg of lamb, that's what she did. She cut the thing so the bone would bend back, and she put it in the baking, roasting pan. So when uh, I went, he went to his grandmother's house, 
and she was cooking a leg of lamb, and when she was there, she cut the thing and put the bone back and placed it in the thing. And he said, Grandma, why do you do that? And he said, well, you know, when your grandfather and I were first married, we didn't have a lot of money, and I didn't have a pan big enough to be able to put the leg of lamb in with, no, with, with the bone out straight. Right? But guess what we had? The creation of a tradition. So you and I need to be ever vigilant about the issue of tradition and traditions. We hold tradition in very high regard, but we always need to stand at some critical distance from traditionalism. So that's not what we're talking about when we talk about this, nor the Savior talking about when he speaks about uh, something old and something new. And how does the tradition stay alive and vital? So this week, give thanks for all your relationships. See if you're able in the course of things to practice the non-anxious presence in the face of the reactivity and anxiety of other people. And to know, as Paul says, that the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. Amen.